All right. Um, hey, we want to keep going with our series, Who Stole My Christmas? And uh, th- the way I wanted to kind of kick this off is I want to introduce you to someone that I knew in high school. And he was actually part of our high school baseball team. So I'm going to give you a quick little picture for context. This is the 1991 Fairview Knights, let's go Knights, uh, Fairview Knights baseball team right there. Can you see me? In there, you got me? I'm, I'm in the middle, number nine, right there in the middle. And in case you're kind of wondering what I look like a little closer, here's a little bit more context for you. There I am in 1991, 17 years old. <sighs> you know, I wasn't lefty, so I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but uh, so, I, you know, I was looking at I was kind of messing around and I look at this picture. And I just the first thing I thought when I saw this picture was, oh, my gosh. Thank goodness I am so much better looking now um, than I was back then. I just, you know, if you, if you pulled off that hat, you'd see way too much hair, uh, you know, way too much time in the weight room, uh, way too young. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm so glad that I've got so much experience now. Um, but anyway, so that, that was me back then. But I actually, I want to show you somebody that I knew on our team. Uh, so if you go back to the picture, you'll see, and we'll, we'll dial in on this guy. Look all the way to the left over there. That's Mo, not our Mo, a different Mo. Mo was our assistant baseball coach. Uh, he was just a hilarious guy and uh, loved him. And I, I want to tell you a little bit of Mo's story today. Uh, Mo was the assistant baseball coach, but he was also my boss at Angelo's Pizza. So I flipped pizzas, and it was this little shop out in Gun Barrel that another kid on the team's dad owned. And so Mo was the manager out there, and he hired me to flip pizzas and, you know, uh, make calzones and all that stuff. Uh, but this was kind of Mo's life, was being assistant baseball coach and working in the pizza place. And I just got thinking, if you think about um, what we value, and we think about kind of the hierarchy of, uh, you know, Climbing the corporate ladder. Where, where does assistant coach at Fairview and pizza guy rank on this chart? Is it up here? You know, where, where? I'm saying it's kind of down here, okay? Assistant coach, pizza guy, right down here with pastor descent. You know, kind of living down here at the bottom of the barrel. Uh, and, and, but I want to tell you Mo's story. So, Mo's going along, and he's doing his assistant coaching thing, and, uh, you know, we all loved him. He is hilarious and fun and just smart and love this guy. So one day, Mo gets a call from this guy, a friend of his, who says, hey, um, I, he's got a mutual friend who, this is wild, happens to be a pitcher for the Colorado Rockies. Guy's name was Bryn Smith, and Bryn Smith wanted to learn how to fly fish. And he knew that Mo was a fly fisherman, right? So he, he calls up Mo and he says, hey, would you be willing to take Bryn Smith out just for the day to teach him how to fly fish? Yeah, I'm happy to take the Rockies pitcher out for a day and teach him how to fly fish. So they go out, they get on the river, they're out there going along. And the way I picture this happening is that Mo's out there and he was lefty. And so he's out on the stream and he's cast and left-handed and he's getting to know Bren Smith, and, and Bren Smith looks at him and says, hey, um, you know, we actually, the Rockies actually need a left-handed batting practice pitcher. So do you throw batting practice? 
And Mo says, well, yeah, I'm assistant baseball coach, right? So, yeah, I throw lefty. Would you be willing to come down and actually throw batting practice for the Rockies uh, sometime? <laughs> That's a step up. All right, so he goes from throwing practice to me, little not good looking me, right, at 17, to Mo is down throwing batting practice to the Colorado Rockies. Incredible. So he's down there and he's throwing batting practice and he um, gets to know some of the players. And one guy in particular, a guy named Dante Bichette, uh, gets to know Mo and starts to like him. And so he's, he's, you know, becoming friends with Dante Bichette and some of the other players now are starting to like that Mo guy because he's hilarious and fun and great and smart. And, and so they go, you know what, we might be able to figure out a job for you down here besides just throwing batting practice. So Mo ends up getting a job in the clubhouse as kind of the, like, gopher guy, right? So now, now he's, like, he, he's done with Angelo's. He's done with, you know, coaching me and the gang. He's now throwing batting practice, and he's a clubhouse guy, and he's driving around Andres Galarraga's, like, $75,000 car, like, shuttling it from the airport to his house. And so Mo, Mo is climbing the ladder. I mean, seriously. So it doesn't stop there. He's, um, he, he's driving around a car. The guys keep liking him, and all of a sudden, they're, you know, we ought to put you in charge of the clubhouse, you know. Mo, you got skills, man. We're, we're going to take you from kind of clubhouse gopher to now you're in charge of the Gophers. And so Mo is like taken step by step. And some of the guys, like the, the, the bigger kind of execs in the organization are starting to get to know Mo. And one guy in particular, this guy named Walt Jockety. Uh, some of you guys know who Walt Jockety is. Walt Jockety starts to get to know Mo, starts to like Mo. Well, it turns out that Walt Jockety leaves the Colorado Rockies and moves to the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, by the way, before I go any further, anybody here a St. Louis Cardinals fan? Just curious if there's any St. Louis Cardinals fans in the room. Good. Okay. Um, so, so, Mo, so Walt goes to the St. Louis Cardinals, and he's, you know, uh, way up in the organization there. Guess who he decides to bring with him to the Cardinals? And makes Mo one of the big guys in the scouting uh, department of the Cardinals. And not only that, Mo works his way up to become the director of scouting for the St. Louis Cardinals. You guys, the guy drafted Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina. Is anybody on to this besides me? I, I mean, if you're a baseball fan right now, you're like, wow. Like, this is serious stuff. Mo drafted them. Walt Jockety becomes the general manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. Guess who he picks as his assistant general manager? Mo. He was teaching me how to flip pizzas. Now he's the assistant general manager of the St. Louis Cardinals until Walt Jockety leaves. And Mo interviews for the general manager job. And he gets it. In 2010, Mo became the general manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, and in 2011, the St. Louis Cardinals won the World Series. Since Mo has come up to be the general manager of the Cardinals, they have not had a losing season since. He has been named Executive of the Year in Major League Baseball three times. And so two years ago, they promoted Mo as if you could go any higher. They promoted Mo 
to president of baseball operations for the St. Louis Cardinals. It's the same job that John Elway has for the Broncos. Here's a picture of Mo now. This is what he looks like now. So, Seriously! <laughs> Have you ever heard anything like that? All because he can fly fish. Okay? <laughs> I'm telling you, if, if that isn't proof, I'm, you know, I, I love saying this. Fly fishing is the only Jesus-endorsed sport, okay? You think of the Bible, and you see it in Moe's life. You guys, this right here, think about it. This right here is the American dream. There it is. That's why we all love where we live. That's the stories that we love to see. We love to see somebody come from the very bottom and work their way up to the very top. That's the American dream in action unbelievable and it's why it is so stinking hard to understand Christmas when you think about what happened at Christmas time and you think about the fact that you're born and I'm born in this culture and all you know what we love and what we value is this it makes no sense it is so difficult to get your mind around what happened on Christmas. You guys, think about it. Every single one of us knows somebody that didn't come from where Mo came from. Some of us know people, or we read about people, or whatever, that they actually start here. They start at the top. They start with all the money. They start with all the fame. They start with all the power. What do those people do? They try to keep it. They try to go this direction. Even if they can't go anywhere up, they're going to use that power. They're going to try to do everything they can to hold on to it and pass it down generation, generation, right? That's, that's what is normal human behavior. And then we are smacked in the face by Christmas. Guys, I want you to stop and think for a second. Where did Jesus start on this little chart? Where did he come from? Is he up here? Is he down here? Some of us might think, well, he started down here because he was born in a manger and it was in Nazareth, which was in the middle of nowhere, to some peasant parents. And so, you know, Jesus was actually down here. And then you read the beginning of the book of John, which says, in the beginning was the Word. And, and when John uses that word, word, he means Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was what? The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then he goes on and he says, you know, everything that's been made, everything that you see, everything that's been made was made through him, through the word, through Jesus. Nothing that's been made was made without him. You know, you, you get the sense from John and you get the sense from Jesus' own words and his own self-understanding that Jesus actually did not start down here. Jesus started at the top, pre-existent God who's existed forever. Does it get any higher than that? Uh, I want to walk you through a passage that I think is going to just lay out the Christmas story for you in a way that maybe you haven't thought of before. And, and it's a story that goes so against some of the ways we think about the world. And that's why Christmas is so hard to understand for us. 
uh, a guy named Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, and he wrote to a city in a uh, place called Philippi. And in this place, Philippi, it was like every church. They're doing their thing, and they're fighting each other, and they are having trouble getting along. And so Paul's going to write them a letter to try to coach them on how to get along with each other. And he's going to use the example of Jesus. He's going to point to Jesus and say, look, this is what it looks like. Okay? So in Philippians chapter 2, that's the letter he wrote. In Philippians chapter 2, look at what Paul wrote. He says this. He says, though he was God, or, or he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. You're going to get along. You've got to have the same attitude. Though he was God, right? Right back here. Okay? This, is, this is what we're talking about. Though he was God. There it is again. He starts at the top. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Now, what does that mean? So, okay, he starts here and he's not going to cling to that. Uh, you guys know there's a lot of different translations of the Bible. This one's the New Living Translation. I use a lot because it's just so easy to read. But there's a bunch of different translations. And sometimes certain translations are stronger for how they interpret Greek words than others do. And in this case, I think the idea that Jesus didn't cling to it is kind of missing the boat a little bit. Uh, there's another translation called the NRSV. that I want to show you how they interpret what is being said here. Let's, let's check it out. It says, though he, he was uh, equal with God, he did not think of equality with God as something to exploit. Or another translation says, as something to take advantage of. So while everybody else, the normal thing when you have power is to hold on to it, right, at all costs. Jesus says, I'm not going to exploit my power. I'm not going to take advantage of my power. That's a step down. That's going in a different direction than the rest of us go. I, um, somebody forwarded to me this article that's a couple years old, but I just found it fascinating. It was talking about what happens with people who have power. There was a study done around people that have power but have it for a sustained period of time. People that have control, people that have influence, people in high positions. What happens to those people? Often they get to those positions because they have some amazing things about them, wonderful attributes. But once they get there and they have it for a period of time, what happens? The study is fascinating, showed over and over again that people that have sustained periods of power, not in every case, but often lose their empathy for other people. They lose the sense of what it means to relate to someone who's lesser than they are. And in fact, uh, some of these researchers say it's almost like they have brain damage. Uh, the article talks about the spot in your brain that actually controls your empathy for other people. Here's the name. I can't, you know, I can't remember it. Supramarginal gyrus, okay? Hey, somebody tells you, you, don't, you know, that church is boring and that it's all stuff that you're going to expect when you show up here. You didn't expect the supramarginal gyrus this morning, okay? So that... That, that's, that's what we're talking about, is this little spot in your brain that controls your care for other people. When people who have been in a position of power a long time, it's almost like it got ripped out of their head. Jesus, man, if you're like in charge of the universe forever, you're in danger of losing your empathy. And Jesus decides to, to take this step. He makes a decision. The first decision is to say, I'm not going to exploit my power. 
I can do whatever I want, but I'm not going to exploit it. That's a step down. Jesus takes a step and says, I'm not going to exploit this starting position of mine. But then he goes on. Look at verse 7. He says, instead, he gave up his divine privileges. I'm not going to exploit my power, and I'm not going to use my privileges as being divine. Stop for a second, you guys. If you were God for a day, what would you do? If you could do whatever you wanted to, I'd be catching so many fish. I'd be out there right now. It'd be 75 degrees, and I'd be just drilling it, okay? I would turn sugar into a health food. I would, um, on Christmas Eve, Bill would be preaching in a Broncos jersey, right? And all I'd have to do is just snap my fingers. I would love to use that power for my own advantage. There was a movie a few years ago, a little older now, called Bruce Almighty uh, with Jim Carrey. He, gets, he, he basically is given the power of God. So Jim Carrey now is God, and he can do anything he wants and check out some of the stuff he decides to do. Look at this. just keeps going, right? What would you do with that power? You would exercise those privileges, right? It's actually a funny movie because it goes to the heart of what we would do. Well, Jesus decides he's not going to do that. He's going to give up those privileges. Some of you guys know the story of Jesus being tempted. Uh, It's a story in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's there for weeks and he's not eating and he's beat, and he's tired, and he's out, and he like, oh, like starving. And that's when Satan comes to him and tries to tempt him. Now, if you're going to tempt somebody who's at the top, come on, you got to make headlines. What are you going to tempt God with, right? you got to go out there and, and tempt him with women or tempt him with money or do something that makes, you know, headlines here, and so you make this great person fall. And instead, Satan shows up, and you know what the first thing he tempts him with? He says to him, hey, um, you're tired. You're, you're hungry. You've been out here. You're feeling it. Jesus, you know what you ought to do. I've got, I've got some rocks here. Just turn this into bread. Think of the relief. Think of the relief that you're going to have. Just take, it just would take a little bit of a snap of your fingers and you can turn these stones into bread. Now, some of us look at that and go, is, is he like a junior tempter? Like, that is not a scandal. Jesus alone in the wilderness, nobody's going to know. He's, you know, what, what, does he need to go back to tempter school or something and learn how to do this well? Or is it genius? Because what Satan is trying to do in that moment, he's trying to undermine this ark that Jesus has set out on. Satan knows that it's like a gateway drug. Yeah, first it's bread. And what's the next thing he's going to do for himself? How's he going to start to use his power in a self-focused way that eventually now he's exploiting his power and Satan's trying to undermine Jesus' mission from the very beginning? Jesus says no. 
But he doesn't stop there. He's not going to exploit it. He's not going to use his privileges. Verse 7 goes on. He says, he took the humble position of a servant. Now, the word here actually isn't servant. It's a word, doulos, and it actually means slave. And so as you think about, obviously, what we think about when we think of that word slave, I mean, we go back to our experience as Americans and what that looks like. And you guys, let's just say right now, some people have used passages like this over the course of history to justify stuff like slavery. That is craziness. That is not what the Bible's saying. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying, look, he's taken the role of a slave. In other words, he's given up all his own interests. A slave doesn't, no longer works for themselves. A slave now works on behalf of someone else. And so Jesus has come into our world and he's taken step by step down and now the God of the universe is saying, what do the people need that I've created? What do they need? What's most important for them to have in this moment? And, and, and I'm going to step into that and actually I'm going to become a slave to what they need. Incredible. He keeps going down. Verse 7 continues, and was born as a human being. Let me ask you this. How, how much was Jesus human versus how much was he God? So if, if we had a scale, okay, and we put Jesus was human here, and then on the other end of the scale, we put Jesus was God, where do you put him? Is he kind of mostly God and a little bit human? Or is he mostly human with a little bit of God sprinkled in? Is he 50-50? Like kind of, you know, cut in half, split personality kind of thing. Is that, is that what's going on with him? Where do you answer that question? Uh, for those of you that struggle with this, uh, let me put it in Marvel terms, okay? Um, let, let's take a look right here. This is the god of thunder, okay? This is Thor. Where, when you think about Thor, is he mostly human or is he mostly God? You know, I put up this picture once, uh, it, like years ago, in a different sermon, and uh, Becky, our worship pastor, saw it, and she was like, oh, you know, like Chris Hemsworth, you know. So, you know, Be- Becky looks at this question, oh, he's God, all right, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so where do you answer that question? Because on the one hand, he's calling down thunder and can do whatever, and on the other hand, he's like, Drunk in Ireland somewhere playing Fortnite, you know, and uh, that's an in-game spoiler. So is he more on this end or is he on this end or is he somewhere in the middle? How do you answer that with Jesus? This question matters a lot on how you see Jesus. Why? Because it's not a scale. Okay, the, the question from the beginning is wrong. It's not that Jesus falls somewhere on a percentage basis on one or the other. I want you to think of this more like it's a circle. And in that circle, you got 100% Jesus was God in the flesh. The Son of Man, it's a term we used before, the stuff that he talks about, about himself, the way the biblical writers saw him, everything points to this was God in the flesh. But he was 100% human being. And those two overlap each other. In some weird, mysterious way that we can't figure out, but it matters so much. Why? If Jesus came and was God, who just kind of threw some skin on for a second, he actually doesn't get us. 
he actually doesn't get the stuff that you're going through. He actually didn't sacrifice when he went to the cross. Because if he's not human, he doesn't actually understand the pain of that. No, Jesus suffered. He was hungry. He lost people he loved. He experienced physical pain. Guys, all the stuff that we're going through right now, all the stuff that's going on in your life right now, you actually have somebody because of this path that he's taking who gets it, who's with you, who understands the stuff that you're going through. And that matters. And that ought to change the way that we pray. Because now we know that we've got a God who listens and hears and actually gets it with us. There's a guy, uh, actually we don't know if it was a guy, it was somebody who wrote the book of Hebrews who wrote about this. And the, the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, ha- referred to Jesus as the high priest, right? This, uh, this writer was trying to get people to understand who Jesus was. And so whenever you see the high priest in Hebrews, they're talking about Jesus. So look what, look what they say in uh, chapter 4, verse 15. This high priest, Jesus, understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he didn't sin. Guys, if we're coming up against stuff in our lives that are just, you know, it's Satan in the desert who's trying to tip us over the edge on something right now that we know goes against what God's got for us, we can actually reach out to someone who gets it. Someone who has sacrificed, and it's real sacrifice, not a phony thing. I love that passage when Jesus is on the cross and he's dying and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? It's a quote of Psalm 22. And there's some people that have a problem with Jesus' humanity who say, Oh, he's just practicing his Bible memorization, you know, when he's dying on the cross. No, he's crying out just like we do. It's one of the most beautiful things that you can grasp is that this God has come down and has lived the same kind of life that we have. Man, we can relate to that. He's with us. And he didn't stop there. Look at verse 7 and 8. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. He didn't exploit it. He didn't take care of his privileges. He was a servant. He was a human. And he died. And he didn't just die. He died the worst death of all. He died on a cross. Awful. Look at this career arc. Man, we're all, you know, this is... This is how we live. This is how we go. This is how we think. This is what we dream of. And we got a God who went the opposite direction. And he dies on a cross. You ever ever wondered, ever ever thought some, like, why did he do that? Why did he have to do that? Come on, if he's God, couldn't he have, like, snapped his fingers and just, like, figured out some other strategy? And I even read uh, recently, somebody wrote something who said, well, If you're a Christian, it actually means that you believe in child sacrifice because you've got God the Father who sends God the Son and God the Father's mad and worked up and flooded us and Noah. And so then to figure things out, he sent his son and his son, he killed his son, okay, to to get rid of this rage that he's got. 
Come on. It's not child sacrifice. <laughs> Let's go back to this little circle again. If Jesus is God in the flesh, he chose self-sacrifice. He came himself. He knew what Judas was up to. He could have stopped all this. But he allowed himself to come into our world and die on our behalf. And, and, and like Mo was talking last week, you guys, when, when we think of why, why would God do that? Man, if, if, um, if you're going to figure out that extreme of a solution, it tells you something about the problem. Any extreme solution means that you've got a serious problem on your hands. And this ought to tell us a little bit of the nature of sin in our lives, that we were given choice and we are prone to harming ourselves and harming other people to the point where it required God to step into our world in self-sacrifice and die on a cross for our sin. That's an amazing message. This baby didn't stay in that manger. He grew up and did something phenomenal. You know, we could, we could end it there and just call it good here, and we could all leave going, wow, you know, that's so interesting that, uh, you know, we go this way and God goes that way. Very interesting. You know, we could, we could leave it at that, but that would miss the point. You guys, if this isn't just a bedtime story, it has major implications. It's a call. It's a call to decide. It's a call in your life. Because Jesus just didn't do this. He actually asks you to follow him. He asks, he, he asks you to turn your life over to him. He says, go where I go. Follow me. Give your life to me. Re reject any brand of Christianity that you, and they're out there, any brand of Christianity that is trying to somehow gain power, control, blah, 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 that ain't from Jesus. The way of Jesus is in serving and serving even our enemies. But it starts with handing our life over to Jesus and saying, God, I believe that you did this and I am giving you myself in trust. Look at how the passage ends. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the story. And so we worship him. And so it's a call to give our lives to him. It's a call to bow and bend a knee. It's a call to say, you're the king. This baby is asking something of you today. And, and maybe you've followed him for a while, and it's time to turn over to him something in this step here and say, um, God, I'm going to serve my enemies. I, I'm going to follow the footsteps that you followed. I'm going to hand over in humility something to you. Or maybe it's for the very first time saying, I, I see it, I get it, and I'm in. And I'm going to declare that you're God. And I'm going to give my life to you and I'm going to follow you. There's no other time like Christmas than to make that kind of prayer amazing.
what will you do with this? What will you do with this amazing message that asks for a decision? I want to pray for us, and I just pray that wherever you're at, you'll take a second in this prayer and talk to God about that. I'm going to leave a little bit of time for that, and he'll listen. So God, we love you. We're amazed by you. You did something with your life that none of us can quite get our minds around. And we've been trying for 2,000 years. Would you help us, God, to step into your story? Would you help us to follow you? Would you help us to give our lives to you? God, we, we just want to take a second in silence here and just leave a second to pray. Uh, maybe it's something to pray about that um, we have a wound in our lives that we know, God, if you having walked in our shoes that we can share it with you today. We pray, God, that you'd hear these prayers right now. God, thank you that you hear and you respond you work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.